Dear Tim, the good gift that was entrusted to me, I now hand over to you. Guard this gift, grow it, and pass it on to those to come. Good evening, everybody. Good to see you all. Well, today we had a bit of a party going on here. We had a uh, celebration for the 30th anniversary of the, the life of this church. So that's why we've got these balloons here today. And we had the privilege of having Pastor Tom Frew come and spend time with us today. And he, he shared the word with us today, Tom being the founding pastor for the first six years of the life of the church. So if you're wondering what the balloons are about, you may have well thought it was my birthday. I know, uh, but I just thought I'd correct you. Um, I'm actually five years older than that. <clears throat> so tonight we're going to uh, continue on in this, this look at this book that Tim, uh, sorry, was written to Timothy by Paul. And these are the last words, the last words that uh, Paul wrote. He was in prison. Uh, he knew that his day of execution was coming close. And for a lot of us, we can only really imagine what that might be like. Um, what is it like knowing that your own death is pending? You're not necessarily certain of when that's going to happen, but you know it's close. And uh, for Paul, he was making sure that he wrapped up all these loose ends of his life, making sure that he said the last things that he wanted to say before he departed. And last things are really, really important, aren't they? We often are interested in what it is that somebody might have said as a, a summary of their own life as a summary of their own thoughts about something. Uh, I've got a friend of, of mine, friend of Michaela's of mine, in, uh, in hospice right now. And uh, we've been told it won't last more than a couple of days. Uh, went and saw him yesterday, uh, had a few words. And they might be my last words with him. It's just the nature of life, isn't it, that we will be left with those last impressions, those last words that we have with somebody. And so when we look at these scriptures we see it towards the end of this book, and we're getting closer to the end now, where Paul is really pressing into Timothy, listen, mate, if there's one thing that I want you to know, this is what I really, really want you to hear. Does that make sense? So let me pray, and then we'll open up these scriptures. Father, as we think about our own life, we never stop to really think about last things, because eternity is within our heart, and death surprises us. But for that reason, Lord, as we see what it is that Timothy is hearing from Paul, what Paul is saying to Timothy in these moments, uh, there's something really, really sobering about these words. And there's some real gravity, some real depth, some real weight to these words as well for that reason. And so I pray that you would open up our hearts so that what it is that was said to Timothy would speak to us also for they are about God's priorities. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's have a look at these. These are all the verses that we're going to do tonight. We're going to come back and follow them through again. But uh, this is what the Scriptures say to us. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage 
with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. Amen. Amen. So let's go back to this, uh, this first, first few verses here. Um, Paul is using um, this imagery to help, to, to help him communicate the, the gravity of what he's wanting to say. <clears throat> right at the beginning there, he's saying this. Look, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. So this isn't just Paul saying something to Timothy here. He's saying, listen, I want you to stop, Timothy. I want you to listen to what I'm saying here. And I want you to grab this moment that I'm speaking to you about. And I want you to have an image in your heart and your mind that you are now in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ Jesus. So all of a sudden, the weight of this conversation is going up, isn't it? He's saying, listen, this isn't just me talking here. These are the words of God the Father and God the Son in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. So not only are we in the presence of God and of Christ, but in the presence of two very, very powerful things. They being in view of his appearing and his kingdom. Okay, so we're expecting Christ's return. The church has been waiting upon the return of Christ and the time is his. But in view of his kingdom, in view of all the things that are important to God, let me tell you what I'm going to tell you. And what he's telling you right there in the middle line is that there's going to be a judgment, a judgment of the living and the dead, those who have died and those who are alive upon Christ's return. And um, they are, in a sense, all these four things, God, Christ, um, the, the return of Christ, and the establishment of his kingdom, these four things are all witnesses. Witnesses to what Paul is saying to Timothy. Now, I really couldn't think of a, <laughs> a stronger or weightier or more powerful set of witnesses to what it is that Paul is going to say to Timothy. But you can see how it is that he's really getting into Timothy now. He's saying, listen, mate, you've, you've been my son. You're like a servant to me and you're like a servant to God, but you have to listen to this. This is really, really important. I can't make it more important if I tried. But there is a God who's going to judge the living and the dead. And we are all going to appear in front of that God. And so what Paul is saying is that everything that we do, all that we have done before now, all that we will do after this day, all of this is going to be coming up for judgment. And every one of us, is going to have to face that day where we stand before God and give an account for our lives. Now, it's very easy for us to write this off and say, hey, listen, we're saved by grace, aren't we? Well, yeah, we are saved by grace. We're saved by the perfect perfection of the cross of Christ where our sins have been forgiven. We can't earn our salvation, but the books will still be opened and we will be judged for what we did and what we didn't do. In light of our faith, 
we will still have a reckoning, a day of reckoning. And so I want to take us tonight to the book of Revelation and uh, gives this image, this picture of what judgment will be like for us as Paul is explaining to Timothy the gravity of the responsibility that is upon him. Is that up there? Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. So here we have an image uh, given to us by John, John the Apostle, uh, during this great revelation that he received in the latter part of his life. This image of the time that is coming when we will all have to face together this judgment, whether you be living or dead, you're all, we're all going to end up facing this judgment. And um, as, we, as we appreciate this, we realise that it's, a, it's an awesome thing to, to fall into the hands of, a, of the living God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And it's this living God whom we serve that Paul is wanting to capture the attention for us of. It's uh, very easy to turn God into someone of our own image, isn't it? where God Almighty becomes God Almighty, you know? Hey, you're my bro. We're in the hood with Jesus. You know, we're all just hanging out together. Well, it's, it's so, much, so much more realistic if we stop and we take a step back and we realise that, as Caleb's already said tonight, when we worship, we worship the God who created the heavens and the earth. And, and, and He's the one to whom we will give an account. Um, many years ago, I was up in Papua New Guinea, and I had this quite a profound experience where um, I was climbing up this the side of this this mountain. Essentially, we were going into the inner interior to, to preach to some villages, and um, as we were climbing up, we were out of Mount, out of, outside of Mount Hagen, um, we get to the top of this ridge, and we look back, and there was this valley called the Wagi Valley, and the valley, I'd never seen anything so big before. And it just went on and on and on as far as I could literally see. And we were right at this, this top um, cliff, really, sort of looking back over it. And um, I just had this overwhelming impression that the gathering of the nations on that day of judgment will look like this whole valley would be filled with people you know, who are all there in the presence of God, worshipping the Creator, but at the same time, uh, realising that the books are being opened for all of us. For we are responsible for what we do and what we don't do. And these are, these are real challenges for us because Jesus himself made it really clear that he said this. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's when Jesus returns, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. 
For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Now, this is sort of where the conversation finishes, okay? Because we have this natural ending here. And Jesus is saying, um, you know, when you came and visited me when I was in prison, when you gave me food, when you gave me water, when you gave me comfort, um, this is when you honoured me. And we will rightfully say, well, we can't do that because Jesus isn't physically with us anymore. And so the question now has to be answered. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And so we've been told here that the judgment that we face will be a judgment of our actions, not just a judgment of our heart. It's, it's very easy to, to create a myth, a myth in our own imagination that our Christian faith is just a matter of the heart. That's where it is. If your heart is good, you know, I feel, you know, Ed, you know, you're, 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 you look like you need a jacket, mate. But, you know, God bless you. Keep warm and dry as you go outside tonight, mate. Okay, does that make you feel better? That'll keep the rain off, won't it? My highest intentions for you, my heart goes out to you. I got my jacket. Tough luck, Ed. But I feel for you, bro, you know. And, and we have this, this thing, this, uh, this myth that goes on. It's, it's the difference between Hebrew thinking and Greek thinking. Now, some of you would have heard me explain this over the years. Um, Greek thinking goes like this. And largely the West are Greek thinkers, so just help you understand. Greek thinkers goes like this. When, um, when I would say to my son, son, I want you to tidy your room. He go, yeah, okay, dad. 20 minutes later, son of you, tidied your room. Yeah, I've heard you, dad. I've heard you. I go and look in the room, still a mess. Hey, why haven't you tidied your room? Yeah, I hear you. That's Greek thinking. Okay, I hear you. I fully understand you. Hebrew thinking, which is what the scriptures are largely consisting of here, because this is a Hebrew book, works completely differently. Son, go and tidy your room. I, I, and and if, if my son doesn't do it, he hasn't heard it. You with me? So um, if he says, yeah, Dad, I've heard you, and I go and check his room, and it's a mess, I'll say, no, you haven't heard me. He said, no, no, I've heard you. Yes, you've heard me in a Greek fashion of hearing, but you haven't heard me in a Hebrew fashion. See, as far as the Hebrews were concerned, you only have heard if your actions follow. Does it make sense? Makes sense, eh? It's not too complicated, but it's certainly a world changer. Yeah? Now, we all know, we all hear, that you've got to eat sort of five vegetables a day and three fruit 
and no more meat than the size of the palm of your hand. All right? Only four or five days a week. Okay? And we all hear that. But are we Greek or are we Hebrew? Yeah? We Greek or are we Hebrew? You know, we, we take a whole lot of things. You know, love your enemy, Jesus says. Turn the other cheek. We hear that. Do we hear it in Greek or do we hear it in Hebrew? Be generous with our finances. Do we hear that in the Greek or do we hear that in the Hebrew? And so it goes on. And this is a real challenge for us because when we want to get around something that we don't really like the listener, like the hear, like the sound of, that's the word, um, we default to Greek thinking. So what it means is that when we look at Scripture, we actually know more than we do. We know more than we do because we're oscillating between this Greek and Hebrew thinking. I hear you, but I'm not doing it, so therefore you're a Greek interpreter of Scripture, scripture rather than a Hebrew thinker. Does it make sense? Does it sort of speak to you a little bit about what goes on inside your head? It certainly speaks to me about what goes on in mine. I'm always wrestling the difference between what I know and what I do. I know more than what I actually put in practice, and so therefore I have to keep on working on the authenticity of my faith so that I can take what I believe and put it into practice. Otherwise, I end up being what is described as a hypocrite. And it's at this level that we have to stop and look at ourselves in the mirror, the mirror that is held up in front of us, and we say to ourselves, and later on I'll talk about this a bit more, but maybe to our friends, and we say, can you see what I see? Because when I look in here, I see something looks different to what you think you see. Okay? James put it this way. We've looked at this um, before. We said, um, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And I, I probably shouldn't have put that last verse in there, but we'll finish it there. Uh, not accompanied by action is dead. So what James is telling his listeners is that if you've got faith, it should make a difference in your life. You should be able to see the evidence that faith in Christ has changed your actions. Otherwise, it's just this Greek thinking where I believe Jesus Christ is Lord, I've confessed that he's Lord, and I'm going to the pub to get drunk to celebrate it. You know? That means that you've got this Greek and Hebrew thinking going on. Our actions and our thinking must be aligned. Otherwise, it's hypocritical. And this is what Paul is trying to challenge here. The big challenge for us is that we are definitely saved by grace. There is nothing that we can do to earn God's salvation. We are loved before the foundation of the world. The cross of Christ is perfectly perfect. It's perfectly complete in its ability to bring salvation to us. But the evidence of salvation happening in us is a changed life. It's called repentance. We turn away from the old life and we move in a different direction, honouring God. And, and this is the, the stuff that ultimately we will be measured for and measured by. 
So let's get back to what Timothy has to say. He says here, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Great patience and careful instruction. So Paul is defining two groups here, two groups, society at large and the church, the church family. Um, And there in verse two, it says, preach the word. Well, those who need to hear the word are those who haven't heard the word. So Paul is encouraging encouraging Timothy to preach the word, to be a man who shares his faith, to share with confidence what it is that Christ has done for us all. And then he goes on and says, be prepared in and out of season, correct rebuke and encourage. So this is all part of that teaching gift that Timothy has, but it's also about the church because you don't correct a non-Christian, okay? If a person's not a Christian, you can't hold them to a Christian standard, okay? And this is where the church gets itself in trouble. We might say we don't agree with that, but we can't judge somebody who's not a Christian. Judgment begins in the house of God, we're told, and that's where it starts. This is where we get ourselves offside and in trouble with the world because we're told that uh, they shall know you, my disciples, because you love one another, not because you're correcting us all the time. Okay, but we've got to love them. Okay, there's no problem with loving somebody, even if they're not acting according with the Christian life. But we've got to love them in a way that allows them to see the goodness of God in your life. However, in the church itself, the moment someone says, I'm a Christian and I want to follow Jesus, we say, listen, this is, this is what Christians do. This is how Christians act. Okay? And the problem that we have in today's society, let me, let me be perfectly blunt, is somehow we've created a whole bunch of snowflake Christians. Snowflake Christians. The moment that they get challenged about something, they're like, how dare you challenge me? I'm so deeply offended by that. This is me. This is my personality. I'm so disappointed that you'd actually challenge me that I'm going to go to one of the other 75 churches in the city and I'll be able to sit there for at least 18 months before they find out that I need challenging. So bye-bye, see you later. And believe me, that's what happens. That's literally what happens. Snowflake Christians who can't handle the fact that somebody loves you enough to challenge you about the way that you act, the way that you speak, what your priorities are. You see, for me, my role, my responsibility is to do exactly what Paul is telling Timothy here, is to encourage, to rebuke, to correct. Now, I try to do that with as much love and reason that I possibly can from the Scriptures, but that's my responsibility. If I was just to simply say to any person, you know, come to the communion table, just do what you want, you know, that would be irresponsible, wouldn't it? Totally irresponsible. Because there's going to come a day when you'll stand before the Lord and he'll say, why did you do this? Why did you do that? You can't say, oh, Pastor Craig didn't tell me off about it, so I thought I'd do it. 
That doesn't work that way. But for me, as a teacher, I get judged by a higher standard than you will. So I almost literally take my own life in my own hands in this whole area of judgment by putting myself in a position, believing the call on my life to preach and teach. That's a challenge for me. There's going to be this great multitude of people who are facing judgment and all the preachers over here weeping. (laughs) Probably weeping at their own hypocrisy. Weeping at the fact that they too had Greek and Hebrew wrestling matches going on. I don't want to treat this lightly. But within the church, we're told to rebuke, we're told to encourage, we're called to strengthen each other. And this is why we meet in small groups. Because, you know, it's, it's not appropriate in a larger setting to do anything more than, than encourage and admonish and pretty much about the level that I'm doing now. But when you're sitting with people in a small group and you say, hey, bro, why is it that you are always late for church on a Sunday? Well, I know why you're always late for church on a Sunday, because you're, you're out drinking all night, cruising the nightclubs. And, uh, and, and look, that's not the way to live a Christian life. It's not a way to live a Christian life. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because I care for you. Don't be hypocritical. Don't be double-minded. Don't have double standards. It'll do your head. It'll ultimately wreck you. I had a friend of mine, a guy I went to school with, and uh, uh, he was Christian, but he's a pretty wild party animal at the same time. And when I became a Christian a couple of years later, I, I, I used to go to a home group with this guy. And he was perpetually in that space where he was going to the nightclubs at night. He'd turn up at church at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, still wearing the clothes he was wearing at the nightclub, you know. And he'd be there praising the Lord. And I'm like, this is weird, you know. The guy literally lived two lives. And he literally ended up having a mental breakdown because those two worlds just cannot mix. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen to everybody, but what I'm trying to say is that it didn't matter what we did, what we did to admonish him, to talk to him and say, hey, mate, come on, one or the other, but at least be honest with yourself. Which one are you going to choose? Don't try to walk in two camps. That's called love. It doesn't sound like it, though, does it? Because when it's love, it's all violins. Hey, bro. I love you so much. I don't want to hurt you. I just want to be your friend. Maybe if I love you more and we have a bit more KFC together sometimes, you'll see that the love of Jesus just flows out of me and you can be with me and we'll go to church together. It'll be lovely. That's what we do. Why? Because we don't want to melt the snowflake. We don't. We actually got to give them a blast sometimes and say, listen, Basically, go hard or go home. Who are you trying to fool? Yeah. No, seriously, who are you trying to fool? You're not fooling God. You're not fooling yourself. You're not fooling me. You see, the church is never going to grow on snowflakes. People who live in two camps. And this is why Paul, with his last breath, was last letter, as we literally know it, is saying, listen, 
There's going to come a time when you, you face judgment for all the things that you do. Yeah, you're saved by grace, but don't waste your life. This world needs changing in a dramatic way. And you can be part of this. You can be part of God's great plan, but don't, for God's sake, just sit on this fence of pretending that you're something that you're not. Paul's saying to us that we're responsible for each other. But only when we really engage in Scripture do we take that seriously. We're responsible for each other. We are our brothers. We are our sisters' keepers. You know, I've got to draw alongside people and say, hey, listen, um, here's, here's a picture that I see. Um, does that look like you? And if we can agree together that what we see there is not what God would want, then we work on changing that together with the support that I can give or maybe others can give. I do this when I'm talking to people about their marriages. I'll talk to a husband and I'll say, is, is this really the true representation of, of you? Because we hear your wife saying that you don't treat it too good. Is that you? And the most honest thing you can do before God is say, yeah, I think that's me. Great, that's great. We're halfway there already. Now let's put a plan in place to change that. That's cool. We can support you in that change. Because if you don't pick up the change, the change that you're going to have is permanent. It'll be no wife. It'll be no, no marriage. It'll be busted up. And that is incredibly painful. And we do this, we should do this, with each other in respect to the behaviours that we have as, as fellow Christians. Judgment begins in, the, begins in the house of the Lord. And it's not there to frighten us, it's there to encourage us. I can't do Christian faith on my own. I meet with elders every second week and we talk and they tell me what I should and shouldn't do and more of this, less of that. Yeah, and there are times where I'm like, I don't like the look in the mirror. Let me suss it out and see whether it's accurate. Oh, stink it is. I've got to face that. I've got to own that. I have friends who are other pastors, and we, we encourage one another in what we're about, where we, what we're doing in our church life, whether we're working hard for the Lord. And, and I can say this now, seven years of being the Baptist national leader, there are even pastors who are having a holiday on Jesus, more interested in lowering their golf handicap, waiting for their superannuation to come in. It's very easy to hide from God. But at the back of our mind, driving us, should be this understanding that one day we'll stand before God, not in a way that terrifies us, but in a way that encourages us because God's gonna stop and say, what did you do with your one and only life? And we're gonna say, well, you know, you know me, I didn't get it all right, but man, I was, I was leaning into this, not leaning away from it. I was wanting to move forward with, with what you asked me to do, not move away from what you wanted me to do. And man, there were times when I, was, I was, felt under-equipped. There were times I was scared. There were times I was fearful of men and women. And uh, sometimes I was just playing out over it or lazy and just didn't feel up to it. But overall, I, I, I wanted to be there and do the right thing. 
that's, that's what standing before God is all about. He knows we're not perfect. We're never going to be perfect. But for God's sake, don't fool yourself. For God's sake, don't tell yourself lies. And for God's sake, look out for your mates and your family. They're not mates if they're not telling you the truth. They're not mates at all. What's the point of having mates if they don't tell you the truth? For there will come time when people will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. That speaks for itself, doesn't it? So it's a little cartoon, I kind of like that. Tonight that's me over here. Okay. Sorry to tell you that one. But it's really, really easy to hear what it is that you want to hear. What do you think the prosperity doctrine has done so well in the Western world? Because we want to hear that God wants us to be rich. If you just pray this way, if you just do this with your money, you know, God will make you rich. He wants to bless you. You know, why, why do we want to hear that? Because it works for us to hear that. You know, it doesn't hear for us, it doesn't work for us to hear what the early disciples said when they celebrated the joy for being persecuted for his namesake, you know, to give up their life in so much as to, to, to not shrink from death. We don't find that those churches are very popular and draw a crowd very often. Okay? And when it comes to, um, just going back there, it says, uh, oh, let's read it again. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now, I don't think we've ever had a better age and stage of, of uh, history to, to hear whatever you want to hear. You know, I mean, goodness me, you wouldn't believe the amount of conversations that I have with people and... Uh, and they'll say, this is happening, this is happening. You know, this is what the Bible says. And I'll say, where'd you hear that from? Oh, on Google. Really? On Google? Well, I could go on Google and find the complete opposite. You go onto Google and you could find anything you want. Any idea that you've got, somebody's probably already thought about it, right? Jesus is the devil's best friend. You'll find that there. Jesus is the devil's brother. Jesus wasn't... On earth, Jesus has already returned. You just put it all in. Somebody else has already thought about it. So don't think you're clever, okay? But this is where you need to have an understanding of Scripture. And we're not going to all get it perfect. Don't believe me, we're not. Uh, this is why the teachers and the preachers are going to be standing over on the little side of the judgment, weeping, because Jesus will be standing there saying, you know when you preached on that? That was a load of rubbish. This is the way it was, and we're going to go, oh, oh gosh. We're not all going to get it right, perfectly right. We're going to do the best that we can. We're going to do the best that we can, but the thing about the age that we live in is that our itching ears can believe any myth we want. 
and it's all there and we can print it out or download it or send it off to our mates and, uh, and convince somebody that you know, what you believe is right, the latest incarnation of the Antichrist. You know, it was Bill Clinton, then it was George Bush, then it was uh, Barack Obama, now it's Trump. You know, somebody in the Middle East, it's an Arab, you know, one Arab uh, sheik who's the Antichrist. It could be Putin, it could be the, oh, goodness knows, you know. Your itching ears will be satisfied in every conceivable way. You will find anything you want to satisfy your own theories or predispositions. The only way you can overcome this is by being people of the word. Know the scriptures yourself, okay? You may have heard this illustration before, but it was true to me. When I first left school, I worked in a bank, and after about a year, they trust you to touch the money. <laughs> and I was working as a teller, and we went away on a course, and we talked about fraud. Because, uh, you know, of course, people decide they print their own money. And we got told, and it was true, that we don't show you fraud, fraudulent banknotes. We just allow you to get really, really familiar with the real thing. And so in the day, you'd, you'd count it like this, you know, and you hold on, that felt different. Just something in the texture. And you pull it out, and you'd say to somebody else, can you check that? That didn't seem right. And you'd carry on. And not every time, but... A lot of the times you'd say, it's a fraudulent note. And the only way we determined what was a fraudulent note was by knowing really, really well what wasn't. So you can um, uh, do a study in biblical fraud, or probably a better way to go is just learn to know the real thing. Yeah? And, and believe me, you've got to trust God in this. Sometimes you just get a sense that something's just not quite right. You, you don't even know what it is, but you, you get a nose for truth and uh, you see it often in the fruit of a person's life and, and you just go, yeah, there's something not quite right about this. It's just a check in my spirit. You've got to trust that. You really do. You have to trust that because that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And then you need to just sort of find out from others, maybe go to somebody who you feel you can trust and say, look, um, this I heard doesn't seem quite right. What do you think? That's being wise. That's ensuring that you don't fall into, um, uh, into turn aside to myths, as, as the scripture talks about, myths. Okay. So let me finish with this. I'm just going to go through that whole... Um, set of verses again, and we'll finish up with the last one. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instructions. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. 
I just love that real simple clarity that Paul gives right at the end there. Verse 5, it says, But you keep your head in all situations. You know that lovely little saying that we've seen around, the, around more recently? It says, keep calm and carry on. That's the original keep calm and carry on. Keep your head on all occasions. Okay? That's what that really is saying. When everybody is losing their head over some fantastic new doctrine that's arrived on the street, when everybody's chasing after the latest, greatest anointed man of God who's going to you know, see the kingdom come and do all the work for us, and all we need to do is have him lay our hands on us, don't chase that person. Okay? God doesn't operate that way. See, God has a one-on-one relationship with you. And when you start chasing the anointed man for the, for the bigger anointing, for the bigger experience, you're sacrificing your own relationship with God. You're giving that away. You're saying, God loves that person more than me. Therefore, I have to get closer to the other person. Instead of taking two days out to chase the anointed man, if you went and had two days out and sat under a tree and said, Lord, speak to me, you'd be better off. Am I allowed to say that? Get myself in a lot of trouble here. Endure hardship. When life is tough, God hasn't abandoned you. What he's doing is he's hardening you up a little bit. He's turning you from a snowflake to a piece of steel. Endure hardship. Oh, it's too hard. I'm going home. Snowflake. I went to church and that person didn't like me. I'm not going there again. Snowflake. I went to church. They didn't sing the songs I like. Snowflake. And so it goes on. Endure some hardship. Put up with a bit of persecution for your faith. Be challenged. Stand your ground. Know what you believe and why you believe it. And when others around you are saying, listen, we think you're strange. We think you're weird for believing in this God that we can't see. You'll say, well, I know the God that you're talking about. And I know today who it is that I serve. And, and I'm... I know where I'm going and I know what I'm doing and I know why I'm doing it. Endure some hardship, toughen up, harden up. And finally, do the work of an evangelist, which comes from your witness. Let me put it the other way around. If you go into the pub every second night, coming home drunk and stoned, chasing girls around or boys around, let me tell you this don't do the work of an evangelist. Just shut up. Get your life right first before you actually say anything. Because I'm sick of making excuses for people who are hypocritical. As a minister, you wouldn't believe how often I hear people say to me, oh yeah, I believe in God, but I go to work with this fella and he does this and that and that. And I'm like, and I suppose he tells you about Jesus, does he? Oh yeah. I'm like, oh, I wish he'd just shut up until he got his life right. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that either, but I just did. <laughs> you're never going to be perfect, so don't, don't read it wrong. I'm not trying to tell you you've got to be perfect before you share your faith. 
But there needs to be some meshing together of your faith and your story. Yeah? And it might begin with your friends around the coffee table at work going, man, I, I think the world's bigger than all of this that we see. Eh? I, think there's, I think God's out there. And, I, and, I, and I'm trying to find out who God is. You know? Well, no one's going to judge you for that comment, are they? Because there's this, this gap of eternity with inside every person around that coffee table. And you're just being honest. You're just saying, I think there's more to it than this. And so, you know, I, I go to church and, and I'm, I'm trying to work out who this guy Jesus is. You know, the Bible tells me that, you know, he, he loves me and he died for my sins. I'm trying to work this out. No one's going to criticize you for that. Because we're all journeymen or journeywomen. We're all people who are, who are working it out as we go. And we, we're learning to, to live this life, this one and only life. And we're trying to do the best we can with it. So you're not, not going to be perfect. But be honest with the people around you. And being an evangelist means just being honest, telling them your story. You know, what did you do on Sunday? Oh, I went to church. Oh, yeah. What happened? Well, they might not even ask you that, actually. <laughs> but just tell them what you did. Just be honest with your life. What did you do on Monday night? Oh, yeah, I go to this folks' place and we, we do a Bible study. Oh, really? Okay, it's just being honest. And guess what? They'll, they'll watch your life like a hawk. Yeah? I remember once uh, at work, years ago, um, we were sitting around waiting for this meeting to start, and they were telling jokes. And um, I said, oh, I heard a joke the other night at church. And they said, oh, what was the joke? And they, I said, I said uh, where, do, where do dead flies go? And they go, oh, I don't know, where do dead flies go? And I said, up old men's noses, because you can see their legs hanging down. It's a bad joke, eh? So, yeah, okay. Okay, you all got good images. And one woman goes to me, you're a Christian. You can't say that sort of joke. And I'm like, you're kidding me, right? You're judging me harder than I'd ever judge myself or the church would ever judge me by having such a bad joke. But they're all over you like a rash, eh, when it comes to judgment because there's something deep inside folks who don't know the Lord about what the Lord wants for them. So, has that been your experience? Strange, isn't it? Okay, so you can tell your friends that joke. So you heard it at church. It's a good conversation starter. Yeah. So we finish by looking at these final words that Paul said to Timothy to discharge, to discharge the duties of your ministry. In other words, be complete. Don't just preach without love. Okay. Don't talk about the love of Christ without giving ear to jacket. And so it goes on. Because there's going to come a day we all stand together and the books will be opened. And God will say to us, what did you do with your one and only life? For us who are Christians, we better say, well, the most important thing we did was accept the forgiveness that Christ offers us. And for that reason, we're saved by grace because we can't earn the salvation. But because of this great love that I experienced by meeting Christ at the cross, it changed my life. And what I've done with my life since, I trust will bless the heart of God.
It's Dan. And so, Father, we come before you tonight in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, his son, knowing that you're the God who will judge the living and the dead. In light of your presence and the kingdom that is to come, we stand in awe of how you would take our one and only life and you would use it in a way that would change the world around us. Lord, we can't change history, but we can affect change to the generation that we're born to. We can be your witnesses by loving you first, by loving others second. And in doing so, God, we, we draw attention to the most wonderful story ever that the Son of God came to die for us. And in Jesus, we have a model and example of how life should be lived. A life of faith, a life of love, a life that draws aside, not with the wealthy, not with the wise, but draws aside with the poor and the victims and those who have nothing to give. And Lord, we find that there you will be. For you've said, whatever we do for the least of these, we do for you. And we want to be found with you, Lord. We want to be found with you. And so God, as I spoke earlier on about my friend, George, who's only got hours to go in his life, Lord, we, I think of him tonight and I, I pray for your mercy. I pray for your grace. I thank you for your life poured out for his and that very soon he'll be with you in paradise as we all will be, Lord, as we all will be. So in the light of your judgment and the light of your mercy, we live our lives knowing that we can really have lives that count. And that's why we're here. To honour you, to love one another, to correct, to rebuke, to admonish, to encourage with love and patience those around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.